Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is Psalm 85. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. God, our helper, show us your paths and teach us your ways. By your Holy Spirit, open our minds that we may be led in your truth and taught your will. Then may we praise you by listening to your word and by obeying it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to our land, to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his faithful, to those who turn to him in their hearts. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and will make a path for his steps. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thanks be to God indeed. So grateful, I'm so grateful to be back home, 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 and home here. I I want you to know that we missed seeing many of you, but one thing we did to stay connected with you in spirit was to pray for you every day. I also want you to know that I'm so, so grateful, so indebted to the leaders of our church. One of the things that pastors ought to learn, and maybe I've learned that, I hope I've learned that from a sabbatical, is that the church is bigger than one person. And unfortunately, some pastors fall prey to the lie that they are indispensable. You know, while I was away, I had the confidence that First Press was in good hands. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the leadership of our staff and congregational leaders, our church kept moving forward, and to God be the glory. Now, what I ask of you is that you would keep it going. Keep showing up, keep staying engaged, 
take ownership and agency for the life of this community that we call First Press. Now, over the next several Sundays, I will lead us through a, a new series that I'm calling Summer in the Psalms. Each week, we're going to reflect on a select portion of the Psalms from the lectionary. The Psalms, as you know, it's the songbook, it's the prayer book of the people of God. As you may have already know, the Psalms have much to teach us about God. It is the language for all seasons of the soul. I love what John Calvin said in his commentary, the introduction to his commentary on the Psalms. He said these powerful words. He says, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy for all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And so a few months ago when I was visiting someone from our church going through some very hard times, and they, I said to them, I want you to read the Psalms. And they said, why? Because I said, what you're going through, you're going to find it in the Psalms. And Calvin is right. He says, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs and the sorrows and the fears and the doubts and the hopes and the cares and the perplexities. In short, he says, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men tend to be agitated. And I, too, am convinced of the power of this book to shape our vision of God. And that's one of the reasons why, while I was away on the sabbatical, Judith and I, we read the entire book for each month of the three months that we were gone. And how do I did that? How do I do, do that? Well, what I did, I just read five chapters each day of each month, and by the end of the month, I had all 150 chapters read, and then I did it again, and I did it again. And so this morning, we're reading Psalm 85, but starting tomorrow, I want to invite everyone in our community of faith to start reading the Psalms, starting at chapter 1 through chapter 5. I want you to join me over the summer and read with me the entire book. I want you to read and I want you to pray the lines back to God. I want you to, to meditate on them and allow God's Word to be this lamp and this light to your path. Allow them to saturate your soul and enrich your vision of God. Now, at the core of today's reading, I believe you will hear this plaintive cry, this plea for revival. Now, revival is a good word. We still use it today in common vernacular. When we hear about a once failing sports franchise is now suddenly winning, and we're hoping a revival will come to the Chicago Bears. When you hear about a, 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 sp a sports team, but you also hear about a, a declining neighborhood that is no longer 
in trouble but has rebounded or you hear about a business that was failing that is now making money. We use the word revival very freely there, but, but something happens to us when we use the word in a religious sense. We hesitate to talk about revival in the religious sense because it suggests what? Especially for us Presbyterians, it suggests emotionalism, manipulation. It suggests an anti-intellectual, low-church approach to the faith. We say the word revival, it's for the uneducated, the uninitiated. They're the ones who talk about revival. But today, friends, I want you to reclaim this word revival. Because in today's reading, the Hebrew word revival is mentioned. It means to return, to restore, to come back to life, to renew life. And oh, how we need revival in our lives and in our churches and in our communities and in our cities. We need revival. What's the context for the psalm? Well, unfortunately, it's really hard to tell. There's really nothing in the title to show the historical setting of Psalm 85 and the conditions that the people are facing at that time. But judging from the contrast between the Opening verses, which we find in 1 through 3, which talks about a recent restoration or a past restoration of the people. And then you encounter the prayer that you find in verses 4 through 7, which now asks for a new restoration or revival. I believe that the psalm may be from the time shortly after the return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile, 70 years in Babylon. So with the time I have left, I want us to think about revival, and I want us to ask two questions. Number one, are we in need of revival? Right? That's a good question to ask. Are we in need of revival? And what steps would Psalm 85 offer to us to lead us to revival? So first question, are we in need of revival? And I'm just going to quickly say it, yes. And the reason why we are in need of revival is because nothing stays the same. You may have had a mountaintop experience a year ago, a week ago, a month ago. It doesn't mean you're still on the mountain. You're either growing spiritually or you're languishing in spiritual immaturity. Jesus, when he came to the churches of Revelation, what did he find? He found them wanting. He found them spiritually dead and asleep. And do you remember what Jesus said to the church at Sardis? He said, I know your works. You have a name of being alive. But now you are dead. Wake up. That's the idea of revival. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. So revival then has to do with waking up and coming to life. And friends, without awareness, without vigilance, without personal responsibility, we're always in danger of sliding and slipping and letting go and falling away from the things that would bring us life. It happens to athletes. Happens to students in school. It happens to organizations like churches. It happens all the time. You know, one of the best definitions of revival is found in that phrase from Acts chapter 3 where Peter was preaching. And his wish for the people of Israel, he said it this way, that times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord would come to them. Don't you love that? Times of refreshing. 
And is there anyone who can say, Pastor Ray, we're good. We have all the refreshing we need from the Lord. Absolutely not. No one in their right mind would say that. So are we in need of revival? And I say yes. So then, how do the, these scriptures help us? What steps do they provide for us so that we too might experience revival? Well, I think one of the first things we see in the text, as you heard it being read, is that the people, these worship leaders, the Korahites, they were recognizing that something or someone is missing. This recognition that something or someone is missing comes because of memory, and it also comes because of comparison. We remember how things used to be, and then we compare our present circumstances with what used to be. And I think that's what's happening here in the text. And so in verses 1 through 3, there is this yearning for a time when God was present and active among his people. And they're looking back. And they're saying, you know what? Something is missing. Do you ever feel that way? Sometimes it comes in the form of a heaviness. And you say, why do I feel so heavy in my spirit? Why do I feel this emptiness? Why am I so bored? Why am I so listless? And why am I so becoming so petty and so dissatisfied with everything around me? Why do I no longer shed tears for all that's going on in the world, the pain of the world? Why am I so comfortable with the way my life is? And I know I'm not pleasing God. I'm committing sins against God, and yet it doesn't bother me anymore. And then you say to yourself, you know what? It wasn't always this way. And then we begin to yearn for a better day. And you hear that in the words of the psalmist, Lord, you were favorable to your land. And you could just see them looking back on a pastime. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. And you turned from your hot anger. They were looking back. And so what did they do? They took the second step and they began to pray. And they began to cry out to the Lord. And in all the numerous case studies on revival that I've read, this is often the precursor to revival, whether it's personal or whether it's corporate. And I think of that governor. When we were out in California, we saw the governor of Utah coming on TV, Spencer Cox. And he was in the midst of one of the greatest drought that the state of Utah and the southwestern part of the United States was experiencing in the last 400 years. Governor Cox went on TV and he asked the residents of Utah to pray to God for rain. He called it divine intervention. And you know what happened, as you can tell, this is the America we live in. People laughed at him. People mocked him because he asked the residents to pray for rain. But when you look at Samuel in 1 Samuel 12, when you look at Josiah in 2 Kings, when you look at Ezra, Nehemiah, and you look at Daniel's prayer, and you look at the conditions that were prevalent in New York City that led to the Fulton Street Revival of 1879, or you consider Jonathan Edwards in New England, things were bad, something was going wrong, and people knew that the conditions were way above their pay grade, 
and they looked up to God. They stopped passing the buck, and they cried out to God, and they repented and said, God, we need you. And this is what you hear in verses 4 through 7 as the people cried out to God. They said, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away our indignation from us. Now, not too many people want to pray verse, pray verse 5 because we, we have a vision of a God who's rather mamby-pamby, who smiles at everything we do. But these people saw God in a different way, and they said, God, will you be angry with us forever? God gets angry. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? And you hear that, restore us again. Do it again, Lord. The use of that adverb again implies that something good used to happen, but it's not happening anymore. And they said, God, would you show up and would you do it again? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. They're crying out to God. Grant us your salvation. So God begins to get a person's attention, a church's attention. When the people begin to realize that something or someone is missing, they begin to cry out to God. And then the next thing that this text helps us to see is there comes a time when you have to trust in the grace of God and in the power of God, because once we realize that something is missing and we cry out to God, then we have to trust that God in his goodness and in God's own time will show up. And when you get to this point of faithful trust and expectancy, there are two dangers that you and I must contend with. There is the, there is the well, it's not two dangers, but there is the, the, the expectation, the hope, and the belief that God is going to show up. But then there is a danger. So there is hope and there is danger. Hope because we're no longer distracted. God now has our attention. Whether it's the governor telling the people of Utah to cry out to God for rain. Whether it's a congregation realizing that they've gone off the beaten path. God gets our attention and we begin to put our hope in God. We're no longer distracted. We know we have a problem and we're looking now for the solution. But there is also danger. There's danger because sometimes in our desperation to find solutions for our problems, we turn to human methods instead of looking to divine methods. And I know as a pastor... And as an individual, I have made this mistake over and over again. Churches make this mistake. We suddenly wake up one day and we say, you know what? Something is wrong with worship. The worship is flat. The attendance is low. The money isn't coming in the way it should be coming in. What are we going to do? And you see the leaders getting together and they're having meetings and they're wringing their hands. What are we going to do? And those are good questions to ask. What are we going to do? But where it could become deadly is when the leaders then say, you know what? I have an idea. Why don't we try to drum up excitement? Let's add this. Let's take out that. Let's bring this new thing in. And maybe these new additions and these new changes and tweaks will drum up enough excitement and people will join us. And if people join us and our attendance increase, and then our giving will grow and our problems will be solved. And sometimes that happens. But the danger is it doesn't address the core concerns. 
years ago, I read Ron Heifetz, who teaches at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. I read his works where he draws a very helpful distinction between what he calls technical change and adaptive change. And this is what he says. I have it on the screen for you. He says, we are accustomed to think to thinking all problems are technical problems. That is, if we work just a little harder, try a little bit more, we can fix whatever is wrong. And indeed, that is how we usually judge our leaders. We think of successful leaders as people who make things happen. They fix problems. But friends, Ron Heifetz says some problems cannot be fixed. They cannot go away. And I agree with him that there are some things in life that only God can change. But the problem is, do you believe that? We can enact, enact laws to stop racism. And I'm glad that there are laws on the books that protect people like me. We can put laws against speeding, laws against shoplifting, Laws against owning certain high-powered weapons. Laws that will provide fairness in the workplace for women and for people with disabilities and others. And friends, don't get me wrong, these laws are critical, but there is one thing that there is no law on earth can change, and that is the human heart and its propensity to rebel against God. And so even though we have the laws on the book against racism, I have stories after stories I could tell you of things that have happened to me, things that have happened to other people even worse than my situation. We have laws on the books against various kinds of weapons. We have laws on the books about how, how to treat each other in the workplace. We have laws on the books against speeding and against shoplifting, but friends, those laws can't stop the evil and the darkness of the human heart to break those laws. Look at what's happening with our Asian community and immigrants and people of different colors and nationalities. When it comes to the condition of the human mind, Christians believe that only God can change us from the inside out so that we succumb or we surrender to those laws. And that's why they prayed this. You will see that. They said, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. These people were saying, God, if you don't show up, if you don't help us, we're gone. Verse 8 says, let me hear what God, the Lord, will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his faithful, to those who turn to him in their hearts. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. It comes as no surprise that people are hungry to hear from God during seasons of revival and renewal. Bible reading is going to lift off faster, faster than Sir Richard Branson's rocket plane is going to lift off today. Prayer becomes the order of the day. We see healings. We see dead things being restored. There is times of refreshing from, the God, from, from Almighty God. During times of revival, Jesus becomes big and we become small. 
But you know what happens during times of spiritual decline and spiritual deadness? Bible reading dies. Prayer is non-existent. There is no word from the Lord. We hear, we prefer to hear ourselves. We prefer to hear from so-and-so rather than hear from God. And people then are exalted and the Spirit of God is left on the outside. I think of that Scottish doctor, William McKay, who was drawn to a biblical text that stirred his heart to pray for revival. He read from the words of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk and his people were in desperate straits, desperate circumstances. And the Assyrians were at the door. Trouble was at hand. Violence in the street, corruption everywhere, something is wrong. And Habakkuk got on his knees, and Habakkuk said, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O God. And then he said these words, renew them in our day, in our time, O God. Make them known in wrath, remember mercy. And it was this text of Scripture that moved Dr. McKay to write that stirring hymn, Revive us again. Revive us again. In 1863, Ira Sankey took that hymn and he used it in all of Moody's revival meetings. And you know those words, revive us again. We praise thee, O God, for the son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. We praise thee, O God, for thy spirit of light who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night, we praise thee, O God, all glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain, who has borne all our sins and cleansed every stain. Revive us, revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. What I love about this hymn is that it's all of what God is going to do by his grace. Hallelujah. Thine the glory. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Thine the glory. Revive us. Revive us again. That's what those people were praying for. That's what Dr. McKay was praying for. That's what Habakkuk was praying for. That's what the apostles were praying for. That's what we now must pray for. And what happens? What happens when God's people are restored? And you see this wonderful picture of heaven coming down to earth in verses 10 through 13. And I just wrote in my notes, there is harmony between heaven and earth. And we need harmony in the city of Chicago, right? We need harmony in our families. We need harmony in our lives. We need harmony in our relationships, one with the other. And notice what the psalmist says. There is, there is steadfast love. Steadfast love and faithfulness are joined together. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground, and the Lord will give what is good, and the land will yield its increase. Any revival that happens, it happens because of a gift of God's grace. So this isn't rocket science that I'm offering to you this morning. I'm asking you to wake up 
to the reality of what we are now facing in our nation, in our city, in our churches, in our church, and in our lives. It's not complicated. The darkness comes when we forget about the light. The darkness comes when we forget to hold up the light. Evil operates within darkness, and God is light, and God wants us to bring the light. We are the light of the world. And many of us as Christians, we've forgotten that, and we're living just like the world, and we've put the light under a bushel. We need revival. We need it now. But in order for it to happen in your life, in my life, in our churches, in this church, in our cities, and our communities, we need to say, Lord, something is missing. It can't be business as usual. Something is missing. And we need to turn to God and cry out to God in repentance. And definitely, we must trust that God will show up and do what only God can do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God's people say, Amen. Amen and amen.